Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and I'm here with Richard Hill, who will live forever. <laughs> and, yes. and my managing editor. <laughs> How, hi, right. Richard. <laughs> I'm mad, and of course, the reason why you're making that rather obscure, obscure comment is because we're talking about something very important today, mm. and it's um, we're following up from the fabulous article we had in the March edition of the Science of Psychotherapy from Catherine Rossi, talking about grief, and she's got from you know from grief to peace, uh, mm-hmm. and this is a very interesting chap in Scotland, Michael Cholby, who's talking about grief a philosophical guide now have you got any uh, uh, any any fabulous things that we can say i don't think we can say enough about this, uh, this well, guide, but what's a, what's a sort of a short <laughs> pricing of some of his his, his things okay well I, I won't read his 30 page cv uh, he's oh, yes. done an awful lot of <laughs> but, amazing um, fellow uh, yeah, chair of chair in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and uh, so his areas there are in philosophy of death and dying, ethical theory, um, philosophy of work and labour, uh, uh, philosophy of psychology. But death and dying is the thing that he's into at the moment and has written about. So, and the book is grief. A philosophical guide, and uh, you you'll be able to find this all over the place, and we'll have links, of course, in all the show notes. So that's what we're going to talk to now. But just a quick plug for what we're doing now. We've just recently put out a new CEU, so that means a certificate, a certificate based course that gives you nine hours of education points on the really interesting and, of course, currently uh, very hot topic of the polyvagal theory and polyvagal uh, work. And uh, we've got some of the best people, uh, we've got some of the people talking, haven't we? That's right. We've got um, Stephen Porges, who will um, lead us in a, a lot of what he has, you know, done with the obviously the polyvagal theory has come from Stephen Porges, and then we've got also um, Marilyn Sanders and George Thompson, who we've interviewed before, and we've featured an article of theirs. They talk about the more practical aspects of the vagal system uh, dealing with children, and uh, Babette Rothschild, who we all know as well. She she is able to, you know. Put things in a in a very practical, easy to understand way. So great course, lots of information, and nine and a half hours of CEU points there. And of course, the wonderful Deb Dana with her wonderful That's practical right. applications as well. So this theoretical, practical. Uh, so jump in on that one. And if you're not in the academy yet, uh, you can you can buy this course for 120, 130 bucks, or you can just join the academy for 99 American dollars, and uh, you can get this plus everything else we're doing. So we like to think that every individual course is almost uh, the value that you get for your whole membership. Uh, so you know, jump on in, and that supports us, and that keeps us doing podcasts like this one with the fabulous Michael Childy. Now, you have to dash off and do a couple of family things. I know that. So you you just pop back into mm-hmm. the um, interview when you're ready. And oh, I'm in charge. I shall take over. <laughs> okay. Shall take over. All right. I'll see you in a moment. Well, Michael Childy, thank you so much for joining us on the Science of Psychotherapy. It's it's really wonderful to have you here. We, we've had a review of your book already by our, our wonderful friend Gunnar Minnett. And uh, 
it was just a great opportunity to, to get to speak to you about it as well. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm pleased to be here. I'm pleased to see the review as well. Yeah, and and you're in <laughs> now. I don't know. We're raining and having a terrible time here. But you're in sunny downtown uh, Scotland, or are you in? I, I am. I am. Uh, I am in the center of Edinburgh at the moment. Uh, we're, I suppose, uh, making the unruly transition from uh, winter to spring. So you know, we'll have a day or two of winter and then a hint of spring, and yeah. then it'll show up maybe sometime in May. But uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you know, yes, but. Uh, uh, Edinburgh weather is, is is a friend, but a very temperamental friend. So yeah, yes, we, my wife and I have had a couple of lovely visits there, um, running in between uh, sun and rain. At, uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. We 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 really enjoy it. Now, this uh, title of this book uh, is actually what perhaps because uh, our audience is mainly psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, practitioners of mental health. It's it's grief, a philosophical guide. Uh, but I'm attracted to it because it is a philosophical guide and Ooh. that this is terribly important in our concept of the science of psychotherapy is that the science, because we argue that science is the knowledge of the gaining into the getting some understanding of, and this is what I think I see you going through this book, sort of pulling us all into a framework. And what was this framework? How did you find yourself, um, you know, what was the motivations that brought you into doing this? Well, there are a couple of motivations. One of them, I suppose, originates in teaching. So uh, as a researcher, much of my uh, work as a philosopher has addressed various questions related to, to death and mortality, ethical issues related to uh, suicide, assisted dying, uh, the desirability of immortality, these kinds of things. And at a certain point uh, in my teaching of that subject, um, I began to notice that the way a lot of students were relating to this material was not really um, by thinking about their own mortality directly, but rather by, by referencing their experiences of other people's deaths. Yeah. And so um, I began to explore to what extent my discipline, philosophy, had uh, investigated, right, this phenomenon of grief. And somewhat to my surprise and, and consternation, I guess you could say, um, they hadn't really investigated all that thoroughly. It's not a topic that um, shows up in, in most of, I, I suppose I would think of this as the major treatises in the history of philosophy. It's not to say it doesn't make any appearance. Um, you know, there's some comments on the matter in, in Plato and, and in the Roman philosophers, uh, Montaigne, Augustine, you know, a few other figures. Um, so part of what brought me to it was, again, that sense that maybe I could um, um, draw my students into these questions about mortality by, by talking about grief. But I realized that I need to talk about grief in a way that was philosophically substantial. And there wasn't um, a particularly substantial or uh, well-developed literature here. So part of it was just opportunity, I suppose you could say. Um, but beyond that, um, I guess my own conception of what philosophy can or should do uh, is that, yes, you know, philosophy investigates problems that are, I suppose, by, uh, you know, contemporary lights, academic in some sense, the problems that philosophers discover. But I also think that philosophy should help us navigate problems that, you know, human beings encounter, you know, in, in ordinary human lives. Um, and that's very much what I think, uh, for example, you know, some of the ancient philosophers, you know, the Epicureans, the Stoics were trying to do. Yeah. And um, I certainly, you know, vis-a-vis -vis my relationship or the relationship of my work to, to the sciences and in particular to psychiatry, you know, I think of these things, uh, of these disciplines as operating, you know, in concert. Uh, I'm quite uh, conscientious in my book, I hope, about making sure that what I say about grief 
accords well with what um, the science uh, says about grief, but at the same time wanting to carve out a distinctive space where I think philosophy can, can make a contribution by looking at these kind of questions about the, the nature of grief experience, the value of grief experience, uh, how we should think of it as fitting into the overall kind of pattern of, of you know, a well-lived human life. So, yeah, Michael, talking about this aspect in this broad brushstroke uh, idea of that, that grief is actually a, a growth opportunity or a, a deepening, I think, is the term you use. Yeah. Well, as I said, you know, when I began plumbing what philosophers had said about grieving, one other thing that surprised me is that the prevailing view, I guess, particularly among ancient thinkers, was somewhat hostile to grief, right? Uh, you know, a yeah. lot of the ancient thinkers seem to view the fact that a person grieves as an indication that the person really hadn't achieved virtue. Um, and those thinkers, um, you know, had this sort of view because they thought that the virtuous life was a life that was, you know, sort of invulnerable to facts outside ourselves, you know, facts in the wider world, including, you know, facts like, well, you know, the deaths of other people. Yeah. Um, so for them, right, you know, grieving was something to be acknowledged uh, you know, at most begrudgingly, right, and sort of uh, to be tolerated. Um, now, as you say, uh, I do represent grief in my book as um, an opportunity for a certain kind of self-knowledge or self-understanding. I don't want to be sort of uh, too Pollyanna-ish too Pollyanna about that. I'm not okay. suggesting that we should be um, delighted that those that matter to us die. Of course, it's one of the, you know, deep and uh, puzzling problems of human life, that we're mortal and we live lives with other mortals. So, I, so I'm not suggesting that we should be uh, pleased, right, that, uh, that others die. But I think we should be pleased or at least grateful that, you know, our psyches have equipped us with this very uh, rich, you know, capacity to grieve, to feel, you know, a wide range of emotions in, in response to the deaths of others. Um, and I think that this is a tool that enables us both to uh, have some sort of grasp right, of the nature of our loss. So there's a sort of dimension of grief that I think looks you know, sort of backward in our biographies, but at the same time, a dimension of grieving that um, it enables us to also, you know, look forward, right, to figure out, you know, how we're going to live uh, our lives, what kinds of uh, values and commitments we're going to have, given that, you know, we can't have the same sorts of values and commitments that we had uh, when this person who mattered to us was alive. So I do think of grief as, as a tool uh, it can be used well or badly, um, but I think we should be glad that we have this tool. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of in, in the, the the examination of emotions. It's one of the the fundamental drives that uh, Jacques Panksepp uh, talked about it was grieving. And one of the things I find so interesting, which is why also why we wanted to talk to you, that there are so many um, common common elements in actually dealing with. Uh, on a psychotherapeutic level, on a practical level. I mean, one of the uh, elements that certainly, um, and I've got a number of grieving patients, Matt's had, uh, you know, things over the time, long-term, but, but he was working in the uh, emergency services, so he had sort of very instantaneous traumas and griefs there. But it was this idea that uh, people would say, I'm, I'm terribly, terribly upset, what will I do? And I kind of would say to them, well, this is a good thing. Because wouldn't it be awful if if this person had had died and you didn't care? It was sort of like woohoo, they're gone, you know. Yeah. Which, of course, unfortunately, I do hear some stories about uh, that story. But you yeah. you talk about it, our identity being mm -hmm. invested. That there's a there's a relationship between 
who we think we are in, in concerns with the other person. That's right. And one of the puzzles that, you know, begins the book is the puzzle of just explaining who it is that we grieve for, right? Um, I don't think we should uh, feel the slightest bit uh, ashamed or worried by the fact that, you know, people die all the time. Um, and in most cases, you know, I don't grieve those people, you don't grieve those people, <laughs> you know, they're basically anonymous to us. Maybe we feel a little tinge of, of dismay at that fact. But one of the puzzles that, that um, begins the book is just trying to figure out, you know, what kinds of um, relationships, right, we can have with others such that those relationships prompt grief, right, when um, the person in question dies. So one of the things that actually, uh, you know, kind of motivated me or inspired me a little bit in this book is, you know, seeing the emergence in, in online culture and social media culture of, you know, grieving of, uh, you know, celebrities, public figures, politicians, pop stars, you know, uh, I think that's all kind of come out into the open, right? Thanks to, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and so forth. And as I see it, this looks like a genuine, you know, sort of grief, right? There's no reason to kind of um, treat it as second rate. And I think that's a challenging phenomenon to, to, to incorporate into an account of grief because, you know, our paradigmatic cases, I suppose, are, you know, the grieving the death of, of parents, of spouses, of, of siblings and so forth. So what I was hoping to achieve is, you know, some sort of account that would make sense of how, on the one hand, you might grieve the death of David Bowie, but also grieve the death of your grandmother and also, you know, your uncle. And, and you know, how, how can we make sense of this in a, in a unified way? So my answer, in effect, is that, you know, we invest our own identities in uh, other people, but the nature of the uh, investment can vary from person to person. So, you know, maybe in the case, again, of, of a pop star, you know, uh, their music may have been, uh, you know, very crucial to, you know, a stage of your life, um, you know, or perhaps you're a musician yourself, maybe you've emulated their work, uh, you know, in the case of a political leader, you know, perhaps you voted for the person or, uh, you know, have, have tried to carry on that person's uh, agenda or political program. And of course, you know, in the case of, you know, friends, loved ones, spouses, you know, we invest in them insofar as, you know, we love them, we're intimate with them, we're attached to them, we, we you know, share life projects with them. So, you know, this is a classic problem of trying to find the, the unity within the diversity of a phenomenon. And I hope that I found the, the unity um, by appeal to this notion of, of investing our practical identity in others. Right. All right. Just now, you might have covered this before I came on. I'm not sure. Um, obviously, you know, death is pervasive. Everyone dies. And, and so death and, and grief is pervasive. Um, and in... Uh, one might just be going right back to very basics here. Um, but as Richard said, my experience in emergency services and then later as a counsellor, it does seem that in the Western world, we don't do grief very well. It's, it's, it's often seen as, as um, pathology. And, um, and so what is it about, well, Western culture is what I know, um, that we, you know, this thing that is all around us and all pervasive, why don't we do it so well? Well, my guess actually, Matt, is probably that, you know, some people do it well and some people don't, right? Probably it's a very uneven sort of uh, a reality there. But I think one of the things that people who, uh, you know, study death and mortality from a sociological or anthropological perspective, so, so not so much me, but one of the things that they have uh, observed is that, you know, Western cultures, um, at one point, you know, had a, uh, I guess, sort of shared frame of reference, right, for thinking about grieving. So, 
you know, if you were to imagine, you know, um, Britain, where I am, or Australia, the United States, much of Europe, say, you know, late 19th century, um, you know, there were, I guess, if you will, sort of scripted protocols and, uh, you know, widely shared rituals, right, that mm-hmm. um, served, I suppose, as the kind of framework within which people could engage their grieving. And there was a pretty widely shared understanding of, you know, what mourning was for and, you know, how long you should mourn and who mourns whom and, you know, uh, a fairly um, thick, right, you know, kind of cultural uh, landscape, right, with respect to grieving and mourning. I think what we have seen, you know, um, from roughly the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you know, small measure, I think, because of the um, declining influence, perhaps, of, of Protestant Christianity, is that there is, you know, less of a shared script, right, less of a shared cultural background, and less of a sort of assumed um, pathway, right, for people's grieving to unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that that has its downsides, right? I think people are a little bit less sure, right, about, um, you know, how to grieve, when to grieve, what, you know, opportunities um, are available to the group, them to grieve. And I suppose one of the things I'm trying to do as a philosopher is give people um, a bit of guidance or a bit of a roadmap, a conceptual roadmap to thinking about what's happening to them when they're grieving. So, I, uh, so I'd like to think I've, I've done a bit of a service. But at the same time, I think that that dissolution of, of sort of cultural common ground around grief is, is not entirely a bad thing, because I think what you're starting to see is people um, recognizing, right, the importance of, of, you know, engaging with one's mortality and, and engaging with grief and trying to tailor it to their own values, aspirations, and so forth. You know, so you have these phenomena like, you know, green funerals and, and you know, other kinds of, um, you know, kinds of uh, emerging, uh, you know, mourning phenomena, where I think people are kind of saying, you know, let, let's, let me or let us create our, our own rituals that reflect our own um, you know, values, commitments, outlook on the world. So I think we're coming out of a period of, uh, of transition, right, cultural transition, and, I, and I'm hoping, right, that, you know, philosophers like myself and other scholars of death and dying, people in the mental health pr- uh, professions, will support, right, a more um, robust, right, uh, cultural engagement with mortality and, and with grieving. I, th- I think we still need it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So this idea that it's, it's now legit to do grief our own way. You know, there's, mm-hmm. um, there's not a set script we have to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and mm. I wonder if we could, if, if it's, Reasonable to expand it out because I know in, in, in some of the areas I, I work with, I've certainly worked the, the grief of, of death, uh, death of a, of a personal partner or someone, a, an identity figure. But it's also this sense of loss. Um, and I've, I've dealt with um, some very interesting and uh, rather testing cases of people who, uh, and just as a, a great example, I had a, an 80-year-old uh, a woman who, whose husband uh, walked in and said, I'm sorry, I've never loved you, I'm running off with the woman next door, um, and just walked out of her, her life. And we had a, we had a long um, grieving, uh, grieving sort of process, and it took a very interesting turn. You might be interested. She, read, she talked the whole time. She just talked, a very talkative woman. And I realised about halfway through the first or second session that what she was doing was she was telling me the story of her life in the singular, uh, which is really interesting. And so she retold her story of her life over a period of 10 or 12 weeks, quite a long period of time, in the singular, and then she seemed to be, um, she seemed to yeah. feel much better. So this idea of loss and what you call this, not, not um, re-identifying yourself, but actually 
uh, expanding and taking your identity into a, a, mm-hmm. a new a new a new phase. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think of grieving as offering us an opportunity to rebuild, reconstruct, uh, choose your preferred metaphor, um, our own our own practical identities, the sense of of ourselves as as valuable and having reasons to pursue different sorts of um, different sorts of enterprises, uh, different sorts of uh, commitments, goals, etc. Uh, so, you know, as we were discussing earlier, I think we should be grateful that, you know, again, our psyches have equipped us with this, you know, very rich source of, of uh, potential insight, right, into what we care about, what we want to care about, how we want to proceed forward in the world. Um, in one of my articles, uh, you know, that was published before the book, I, I sort of described grief as something like an emotional data dump, right? It's sort of like you know, sort of the psyche kind of overflowing with, you know, sort of um, evidence about what matters to us and sort of how we understand our biographies and so on. But your example of the woman who, whose husband, uh, um, you know, divorced her after a long period of time, um, you know, certainly underscores, you know, something that I've heard people say about my work, which, which I welcome at some level, um, which is that uh, I'm placing grief perhaps along a continuum of, of traumas, right, responses to loss of various kinds. Um, and I, you know, I certainly have no objection to that. But at the same time, I do think that the grief that is prompted by the deaths of others is perhaps distinctive, right, among the losses of relationships that we can undergo, right? Um, For one thing, it's permanent and irreversible, right? Other kinds of losses are sometimes in principle, you know, reversible. Uh, You know, I I like to point out to people that, uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, I can't remember how many times they broke up. (laughs) Even if you think that relationship is over, maybe it's not. Um, So, you know, death is, is obviously an irreversible change in a relationship that we have with someone else. Um, uh, secondly, I think it's also an interesting, um, phenomenon vis-a-vis other kinds of traumas because, you know, we know from a fairly early age that everyone, you know, that we'll ever encounter will die. Um, and that's not true of other kinds of events that are, that are trauma provoking, right? We don't know for sure that, you know, we will divorce or we will, you know, lose a friendship or, or whatever. And yet, right, we grieve, <laughs> you know, the deaths of others knowing full well that, you know, their, their deaths were going to happen someday, right? Maybe they would, uh, maybe our deaths would precede them, of course. Um, and then a third feature, I think, is that, you know, I think that the, the, uh, the experience of grief that we feel at the deaths of others um, sends a, a very deep shockwave through us because it reminds us of the contingency of, of everything, right, that we can invest in, including the contingency of ourselves, right? I mean, it is itself a kind of um, uh, potent mortality reminder. Um, so, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm glad to see my account of grief as, as perhaps um, locating, as I said, on a spectrum of, of kind of traumas we can undergo. But I do think that the grief we feel at the deaths of others has some distinguishing features that, you know, merit putting it, um, you know, in a special uh, special spotlight. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I was just thinking that there's we we get a sense of uh, what degrees of uh, we get an insight into our dependence, our independence, mm. and our interdependence. Uh, and uh, and of course, uh, this can be overwhelming and disturbing. So it's it can be very very helpful to go along and talk to someone, uh, you know, sort of a counselor, a therapist of mm-hmm. of some sort. But it's also very helpful to go along and and talk to people who are comfortable uh, about your cultural framework. You know, the, you know, perhaps a religious or pastoral care. This this other problem that we have in the Western culture of of doing everything on your own. Is that something that you found uh, able to be discussed, or is that something that uh, what what does that arise? 
Well, you know, I actually probably have to be agnostic about that. I, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional and I wouldn't profess to have um, uh, expertise about what the best ways for people to go about yeah. grieving are. Um, but I do think, right, that uh, um, people do need, right, other people in the course of grieving. Who they need is maybe a bit more of an intricate question, whether yeah. they yeah. You know, sort of need medical attention or psychiatric attention or, you know, um, the attention of, of religious uh, leaders um, and so forth. Just the dog. Um, or just the dog. <laughs> yeah, or, you know. Or, you know, uh, the favorite books from one's library or, you know, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, So, um, I mean, I do think that one of the things that fascinates me most um, on the side of what people might call the phenomenology of grief, right, how people experience it, is, um, you know, that grief is so often a very disorienting experience to people, right? They feel mm. um, that the world and even themselves um, are suddenly kind of strange and alien and unfamiliar. You know, they, they, they return to their, their dwellings or their workplaces, and those places seem um, you know, unusual or somehow not as, as welcoming or as familiar as they did before. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his very interesting you know, grief memoir, Grief Observed, you know, talks about how um, the grief he experienced at the death of his wife uh, put him in a position where he had trouble recognizing his own body. Yeah, dissociative. It's me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the sense of confusion, disorientation of the world having been kind of upended, um, mm. I think is very uh, fascinating and very powerful in a lot of grief experiences. And that's, I kind of think, where other people can play a very powerful role, right? Because they're, uh, you know, others are, are in this common world with us, and I think they can help keep us, uh, you know, grounded in that common world, help, uh, help us figure out how to find our way back to a world that's more familiar, comfortable, uh, you know, not so alienated. Um, but as I say, you know, uh, I think, um, different strokes for different folks as far as, as, you know, what people might need, uh, you know, grief wise. Yeah, I definitely have heard, you know, when it comes to very close relationships, so a spouse, you know, who has died, this, this aspect of dissociation, um, does seem to be common. Um, so there's something about the, the intimacy there, the strength of the relationship, um, which really, you know, is so strong that it causes this dissociative, I don't know, yeah. episode, period. Mm. Yeah. And in a mundane way, right, you know, with relationships like that, where someone else is so stitched into the fabric of your day-to-day -day life, there's just going to be all these uh, missing sort of moments, bits. I guess, yeah. moments where you sort of, uh, you know, have this friction with the reality that they're not there anymore, right? So, you know, what are you doing making breakfast for two, you know? Uh, yes, yes you know, that's, that's a common story, isn't who's, it? Yeah. Who's, going to, who's going to, you know, uh, I guess I'm going to have to do all the laundry now. And, you know, all these kinds of, you know, adaptations just to very mundane realities. And so, um, you know, I think, again, grief is a tool to, en to enable us to adapt to a world where, you know, someone who mattered to us is now absent. And, and uh, you know, I think we should think of grieving as, um, our, our primary, you know, psychic resource for figuring out how to, you know, continue forward in the world. It, mm. I mean, there was a very interesting sort of phenomenological expression of, of this using those terms, but basically just a dramatization of it. Uh, I don't know whether you saw it, Ricky Gervais did a series called Afterlife. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it went through 
I, as I'm thinking about your book and I'm thinking about the pathway that he took, you know, we talked association, we talked about, you know, incredible uh, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, dependence and then um, the, the uh, lack of ability to, to engage, loss of change of, of essence with life. And really, as he went through the story, it was underneath was always... But what are you learning? Where where are you growing? This these beautiful little conversations on the the chair with the older lady who also had the husband. So it's it's interesting in that his just creative, you know, uh, intuitive sense of things. Really, your book um, tells a similar story. I think so. As I said, you know, definitely, I want to present grief as an opportunity to create something good. Uh, against, again, a background of uh, one of the more distressing features of human life, which is, you know, we are mortals living with other mortals, and mm. sometimes we just have to confront that fact, and, it, and it's, you know, kind of unavoidable when, when, they, uh, when they die. So, um, but the notion, again, of, of having an opportunity to reconstruct the self, to reconstruct your own identity, to figure out how this relationship um, that you had with the deceased has to change, I think that's a powerful, you know, task that that grief uh, makes available to us, and I think it provides us the capacity to undertake that task. And as I see it, you know, it's it's a kind of uh, catalyst, right, for a kind of necessary change, right? Mm. Um, I think you know, uh, one of the worst things that can happen to us, in a sense, right, is to sort of, frankly, live in the past, right? To sort of want right. to live in a world where, you know, the realities around us haven't changed, mm. right? Mm. Um, and, and that's difficult for we human beings. I think we're uh, sort of temperamentally, if you will, small C conservatives, right? We sort of want the things that matter to us to stick around and, and you yeah. know, things that make us feel at home in the world to stick around. And sadly, right, one of the things that cannot stick around um, in, in many cases is other people. And so... Um, yeah. It, it, it is again our it, it, grief is again a, a tool to enable us to adapt. But you know, I think that uh, it would be a great misfortune to someone if you know they never uh, sort of updated their w- way of being in the world to reflect the death right of somebody that mattered to them. Yeah, yeah, and it, it seems to me that for for some people, it's just naturally motivating. You know, they say there's a death of a peer, and so the motivation was well, it's a realization that time is short. Okay, so I'm going to live live on purpose now, or I don't know, a death of a child. So I'm going to live on purpose for that child now. And yeah. and so terribly spontaneously motivating. Um, and for others, it, it, it seems to be really demotivating and, and uh, they get themselves caught into a, you know, a, a downward spiral of, of depression. Yeah, well, of course, you know, that's what I, I imagine we, we want people to, to be able to avoid. I, I think that... Um, to the extent that, that a mere philosopher like me can contribute to, to ameliorating that sort of thing, I, I mm-hmm. think one message of my book is to view grief, you know, in a positive light, right? Um, you know, I think one of the things we don't want to do is, if you will, shoot the messenger, shoot, shoot the messenger right? Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. if what we're trying to do is suppress it, is trying to suppress grief or avoid it or uh, confine it in, in artificial ways, then what we're really doing is sort of turning, turning, uh, looking in the mirror and saying, uh, you know, this thing that's happened, I'm going to, uh, you know, ignore, right? Ignore it to the extent possible. Um, you know, uh, ignore the things that my my psyche is telling me, you know, matter here. Um, so, you know, I, I think most people, and this is, you know, my read of, of the evidence from psychology, do manage grief reasonably well. You know, they come out of it, you know, okay. Um, 
Um, but I think certainly one of the ways that, that they can come out of it not okay is when they just have great difficulty, um, uh, you know, staying, uh, staying with it, confronting it, uh, engaging with it. But also, you know, I think one of the challenges it does present is sometimes it requires a um, probing, right, investigation of, of relationships. And sometimes that can be painful. Mm. Yes. Yeah. There's that interesting thing. I, there was a little sentence in your um, sort of promotional blurb, but it was lovely. It was, you know, it, it sort of you know, the book tells us how grief um, leads to a greater depth of our understanding of our humanity. Mm. And it is an interesting thing is that on a paleoanthropological and anthropological uh, investigation, that was actually one of the determiners of um, people beginning to think, oh, this species is shifting into some, there's something changing with them, when we began to have some um, recognition of death, when there were burials, when there were starting to be artefacts that were left with dead bodies. Uh, sure. And that this was actually something that came into our, our, our space on an evolutionary frame. Right. And um, that's certainly, you know, certainly it's, it's the first place or a first place, right, that anthropologists, you know, often begin in trying to understand a culture is looking at its, its ways of thinking about the dead and thinking about grieving. And I guess, you know, our capacity to, to grieve and our capacity to think about the dead, you know, sort of speaks to the emergence of a kind of intelligence, right, that incorporates, you know, imagination and the ability to sort of think counterfactually and that sort of thing, right, our ability mm. kind of you know, imagine, you know, what would the world have been like if she had continued to live or, you know, something like that. Um, so, you know, our ability to engage with what is not, right, I think is, is in some sense, you know, one of our most powerful uh, you know, cognitive features, but it's also an imaginative and emotional feature too. Um, and of course, you know, that, that in turn, um, I think explains why, uh, you know, grieving has been such a popular subject in, you know, in the arts, in poetry, in drama, in television, and you know, I mean, without grieving, right? Some of these things have no subject matter almost, right? I mean, you know, what, what's poetry without grief, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, so. and also this idea we're still trying to get it, you know, understand yeah. it. And so your book is, uh, that's interesting. No, it's just a good, we, we, we continue to discuss it as if we still don't get it. Um, and perhaps it is something that is almost impossible uh, for us to truly grasp with the brain we've got at this stage. And uh, so it still needs to be tumbled around. I guess. I mean, you know, I, I um, am reluctant, you know, in, in my own work to, to want to be, uh, you know, too directive, you know, to people about, you know, what their grief will be like or how they should yeah. engage with yeah. In part because, you know, I just don't know. I'd have to know a lot more about you, right, to really say anything coherent about your grieving. Mm. But I think, you know, if we have available to us, you know, sets of concepts, roadmaps, if you will, that allow us to understand and articulate, right, our experience, then I think we feel less lost, right? And I think, you know, one thing philosophy can do is develop sets of concepts or link sets of concepts together, um, help us see relationships among, uh, you know, different facets of our experience, and thereby, you know, give people a bit of an anchor for, again, an experience that can be, you know, pretty bewildering and difficult to understand at a first personal level, right? Um, I'm in no position to tell anybody, you know, what their, what their own grief is likely to be like, right? <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. That's got, a whole, that's got a whole lot to do with, you know, the, the idiosyncrasies of that person and the idiosyncrasies of the relationship uh, in question, right, the relationship with the deceased. What I hope I can do, again, is, is give people, 
you know, some vocabulary to talk about their experience that that's, you know, faithful to it at some level. And again, take a bit of the, the mystery and maybe some of the fear and maybe some of the apprehension out of, out of grieving. There's been a few bits of interesting research which have, have been helpful uh, to, for people to understand the how, you know, what the experience mm-hmm. is going to be like. And one which I thought was very interesting was that they looked at the uh, the intensity of the of the emotional grief experience. And they found that over a lengthy period of time, uh, you know, over a, there was a longitudinal study, that actually the intensity didn't diminish. Uh, but what it was was the frequency and the duration uh, was the thing that diminished. And and I know I've got a client who uh, I've been seeing for quite a few years now. And the, the, the distance between the very difficult days is, is extending. But when the difficult days are just as difficult to, now as they were in the very first place. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a bio, there's a psycho, a biopsychosocial um, interaction that 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 um, uh, yeah. yeah that is in play. Mm. Yes, and and you know I don't know if there's such research. I suspect there probably is. I'm just not aware of it. But I'd be very interested to learn more about. Uh, you know, the particulars of grieving at different life stages and in particular maybe the differences between, you know, sort of first griefs in people's autobiography yeah. and then, you know, sort of subsequent yeah. griefs and how these how these differ. Um, there's a very nice, uh, some very nice philosophical work recently done by a philosopher at, at New York University, Samuel Scheffler, talking about aging uh, as a sort of problem where, uh, among other things, one is is kind of perpetually, repeatedly confronting grief because you know so many people who are close to you are, are you know near death, yeah. and uh, you know he, he thinks that there's some pretty profound philosophical questions about you know valuing <laughs> that you know mm. one has to confront as as we age. You know it's so interesting too. You know thinking about first grieving, as I said, one of the things that motivated my interest in this topic was my students. You know talking about death and mortality by reference to grief. And, you know, one thing they're very interested in is the grief that we feel at the deaths of pets, which I'm guessing for many people, that is the first grief that they undergo. Um, yeah, because they live shorter, you know, they live shorter lifespans. Life uh, <laughs> unless, you've, unless you've got a turtle or something, <laughs> tortoise. Yeah, yeah so, they, they're good learning experiences, aren't they? Because, I mean, the, the first sort of experience we have of major grief is when it happens to us and, you know, we're, yeah. it's, it's not like we, you know, we take courses in grief, you know, in high school or anything like that. Um, and so these little little things like the death of a pet is, uh, you know, they're great learning experiences. And as you said, too, you know, we're talking more openly about these things. We're displaying these things on social media as we're, you know, grieving over, you know, the, the death of, you know, a pop star or, so, or something like that. And so that's a, a bit of a uh, an introduction, I guess, um, to the grief that you'll experience when it happens closer to home. Yes, I definitely think that social media has... Um it has made grieving more public in a sense, but not quite public in the sense that it was, you know, again, say a century ago, right? I think it's, mm. again, more of a, uh, a medium in which people, you know, craft or represent their grieving to others in part, uh, you know, to create uh, circles or communities of, of grief. Uh, and I do really think it's fascinating to see how these uh, sort of communities uh, spring up you know, um, almost immediately, right, with the death of, of a prominent person, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I was asking my own students recently, you know, is there anyone, um, you know, whose death would prompt, 
like near universal grief in the human species, right? <laughs> you know, and the one that they came up with, which I, you know, think is a pretty credible uh, case, actually, God forbid, uh, is Paul McCartney, right? Uh, oh, yeah. You know, someone, yeah. you know, the sort of generation spanning figure, you know, uh, yeah. you know, beloved, you know, by many, many, many people. And, you know, um, good luck, Paul. I hope you survive many, many more years to come. Yeah. But uh, when it does come, you know, I think it, it's true, right? You know, you'll see yeah. uh, grieving maybe on, on a kind of scale, right, that uh, it's it's probably, you know, uh, I'm not sure, unprecedented, but close to it, you know, uh, uh, so many people from, you know, interacting around this. Well, I mean, I guess we've had, you know, Princess Diana was... was yeah, she, yeah, she, she comes to mind. Yeah, Elvis Presley was a huge... And, and these... Mandela. yeah. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very interesting aspect of of how we uh, uh, what we still need to know, and this is this is what uh, you know Matt and I are very keen to to talk about with with therapists, and uh, it's not just about the technical knowledge; it's it's also about this deeper understanding of of how the how this thing ticks over, and and I love the way that you've described the individuality. Of uh, of the experience mm-hmm. that we can give some generalities, but when it comes down to the individual experience, there's no predicting. It's it is a truly complex, uh, unpredictable event. Yes, and I think there's questions about grief that I, you know, despite the fact that I've you know thought about these issues as a philosopher a fair bit, that I still find you know difficult to to tackle. I mean, I think one big one is one that I gestured at earlier. You know, we know that those in whom we invest our practical identity may die, right? Mm-hmm. So, and this is not, you know, a mystery to us. I mean, we're quite aware of this. You know, the, the research I've uh, read says that, you know, um, children understand sort of the ubiquity, universality of death, you know, sometime around the age of three or four. You know? mm-hmm. so, so we know this throughout our lives. Um, and yet, right, when they die, it still has this sort of, uh, you know, feel of a shock to the system and we feel caught unaware and unprepared and so forth. And, you know, why is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, we was, we've in a certain sense known it's coming. Um, you know, maybe we don't know the details or the, ex- or, or, or the exact circumstances, but, you know, we, we've known it's coming and, and yet we grieve. And so um, I think there's some deep uh, uh, implications of that, you know, that maybe we, in some sense we need to allow ourselves to be surprised by grief. Um, you know, so that we can continue to to engage with these relationships, right? If you're sort of uh, already, you know, kind of grieving relationships before they're even done, you know, that's probably not a good way to be in the relationships, you know, probably not a good way to to, to enjoy them, to, to get the benefits of them. So, uh, you know, we kind of need to, I think, you know, cordon off this reality in order to enjoy these relationships, get the maximal benefit from them. Uh, but at the same time, once, you know, the crisis comes, right, when the other partner in this relationship dies, you know, there is this shock to the system in many cases. Um, and, and as I said, you know, I'd like to think that grief is, is a chance for us to, you know, rebuild ourselves and, and you know, take stock of our, of our losses. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's a tool that responds to something that's, that's a great difficulty in human life, right? But, you know, we should be glad that we've got this tool. And maybe one of the one of the biological, psychobiological mechanisms from which philosophy has uh, found some emergence. Uh, I don't know. There's a, we have to thinking about these death and dying yeah. things. Sure. Well, you know, uh, uh, famously, right? Socrates says philosophy is preparation for death. That, that's not a good slogan for the discipline, I should say. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, I must go study of some of that. A yeah. whole lot of students come to study it um, for that reason. Um, <laughs> 
But I think, uh, you know, what if, you know, the heart of philosophy is reflection upon uh, the human condition. Certainly the, I would say, paramount feature of the human condition is not merely mortality, but our, our awareness of it and the ways in which our lives are, are structured by that awareness, right? Yeah. Um, in the background yeah. of, of, I think, so much of what we do is a uh, deep and tacit understanding, right, of, of the limits of human biography, of our, of our finitude. Um, and how we how we wrestle with that and how we live with that, I think, is one of the big challenges of human life. Right? So, Michael, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. any sort of final words you'd like to leave for our listeners? Well, since you know so many of your lis- listeners are uh, you know in the psychotherapeutic community, I would say that um, you know my book and and my other research is definitely an effort to build bridges between philosophers and people in the mental health uh, professions. You know the mental health professions have their origins in some sense in philosophy. You know in in you know concerns for for human flourishing and figuring out how to navigate you know human problems. And um, you know I think that I'd like to think that I did um, a good job representing you know, the current science on grief in the book and, and trying to say things that are consistent with that, but also, you know, staking out a bit of territory for philosophers to, uh, you know, make a contribution here. And also, you know, to again, invite the, the you know, the mental health community to, to think about grief in particular as a problem that is sort of endemic to the human condition, right? Mm. Um, and to figure out ways to, you know, treat their patients um, such that the patients themselves appreciate that fact, right? Uh, that this is not, you know, this is not, uh, uh, it's not COVID, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, it's not this disease that strikes some and not others, right? Yeah. It's, it's in more of a much, much more deeply rooted fact about human life. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very, very beautiful uh, and uh, engaging way uh, to Bring the topics, the the this idea of philosophy and and psychotherapy into into a, a collective frame, which is which is exactly what uh, uh, encourages me to think uh, to to continue being a psychotherapist. It's uh, it's not just about uh, wheedling around fixing up problems. It's about engaging the human spirit and finding ways to use these events to create something more. Uh, and surely that's why these things have happened or why they're evolving in the way they're evolving. So thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for writing the book. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we look forward to um, the next one when you figured out some more stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, um, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, I'll, be, I'll certainly be continuing to think and write about um, mortality and, and also some professional ethics issues in the mental health profession. So. Beautiful. Well, we'd love it. When that comes up, we'd love to talk to you about it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael. Sure. Uh, Well, Matthew, you'll be pleased to know I'm still alive. That's right. Uh, So I will live forever because you don't want to grieve. Uh, No, 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 no. Yes. I I don't don't want to have to deal with that sort of grief, you know, and uh, practically it would just be very inconvenient if you died right now. So just don't. Yes, right. But isn't it interesting, this thing, we, we don't want to grieve. Mm. But we do, and it's important, yeah. and it's important to understand. And uh, uh, so it's it's although we you know we're mucking about with our, you know, with each other, but just just in the sense to give that picture of of uh, yeah. who, who wants to lo- have lost, but we know it's coming. And this is just it's such a gentle and embracing 
book mm. uh, yeah. I find. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice contribution and on a, you know, terribly core and important topic for all of us. Yeah. Well, uh, Richard, uh, thanks everybody for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy. If you love what we're doing here on the podcast, uh, we would really appreciate your support and the best way to support us would be to come across to the Science of Psychotherapy Academy. That's at the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. Become a member, become part of the tribe. We've got more courses than you can poke a stick at. And if you're not really so keen to join up in these things, just give us your, your emails anyway so you can get an idea and we'll we'll let you know the sorts of things, the new things we're coming. Uh, we'll actually be doing uh, another documentary on, uh, on on grief and dying a little further down the track. So uh, keep in touch and mm. uh, I'm, I'm sure that, that we'll do something that you'll enjoy. But for now, we better scoot off and get back to our families. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.